Colossians 3, beginning with verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fear the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoers will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and that is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond servant justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, an account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which I, is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know you ought to answer uh, each person. Takakis, uh, will you tell you about my activities? He is a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant of Christ. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him is Onesus, our faithful and beloved brother who is with you. He, they will tell you everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Mark, the cousin of Brunus, concerning whom you have received instructions to come to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is justice, is called justice. Those are the men of circumcision, along with my fellow workers in the kingdom of God, that have been comfort to me. Ephraimus who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on the behalf of his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, that those in Laodicea and Heropolis, Luke, that belong physician, greets you as Demas, Give my greetings to the, my brothers in Laodicea and Nympha and church in her home. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Lycidium, that you might also read the letter from Lycidium. And Acrepus, please uh, that you are full, fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Speak, O Lord as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 
Today is Launch Sunday. This has become an annual event in the life of our church when we begin the ministries of a new year together. Our worship time is intentionally a little briefer because at the conclusion of our time in here, we will dismiss to the Great Hall where there will be a ministry fair highlighting the offerings of this semester and the whole year. As you leave today, you'll have an opportunity to receive a copy of the Ministry Year magazine that's been produced uh, that will outlay everything for you so you can keep it home with you and be sure to know what's going on around here. As most of you know, this Sunday also concludes our series uh, throughout the summer in the book of Colossians. I trust that you have found this study to be as beneficial as I have. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has packed a great deal into these brief chapters for our edification and growth in faith. And I know in my own study of this, it has been extremely beneficial in my life. And I pray that we will not put this behind us, but rather that what we've learned together will shape and fashion us in the likeness of Jesus in the days ahead, because he is more than enough for us in this Christian journey that we are on together. Our concluding passage is timely for Launch Sunday, and as St. Andrew seeks to move forward in ministry here, because it directs our attention outside of our relationships in the church and in the home, and it looks to the relationships outside of the church and the mission at hand. As the body of Christ, our head, the Lord Jesus, has called us to a mission. He has given us vision and purpose, and we must decide if we will take up that calling on our lives. We begin with Paul's instructions to the final pairing within the households of his day. Last week we looked at the relationships between wife and husband and child and parent, and this section finishes with bond servants or slaves and masters. Douglas New points out that the inclusion of slaves in this series of household regulations might appear odd to us, but not so to the original readers. Slaves often composed an integral component of the ancient household, serving the family in a wide variety of capacities. Some have suggested that by not addressing the morality of slavery, that Paul is endorsing it. I believe that's a leap too far. In fact, in the accompanying letter of Philemon that was sent to the Colossian church to an individual in that church along with Colossians, Paul encourages Philemon to treat his runaway slave Onesimus not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And Paul even offering to relieve the debt of Onesimus that Philemon might set him free. Remember that the society where Paul found himself was not operating out of a Christian ethic. It was a pagan society. There was no such thing as a Christian ethic in the political and domestic spheres of that world. But there did exist household codes that were expected of each member of the family in the culture of the day. And that is what Paul is addressing here. 
He was entering into the societal norms and bringing the gospel to bear in believers' lives in whatever state or classification they found themselves. Paul understood that his mission was to proclaim the gospel and make disciples of Jesus Christ, expanding the kingdom of God to include all nations of the world and every class of people within the society. His calling was not, first and foremost, to be a social justice warrior. He wasn't there to make political change happen. His calling was to proclaim the gospel. And as Christianity grew and spread, the resulting cultural and societal changes were great. Women and children were lifted from being little more than property to those with equal worth and dignity before their creator. And slavery was eventually abolished in the West because of the Christian ethic that came to dominate the world from the spread of Christianity. Those changes were a result of the life-transforming gospel, but they were not the goals themselves. As those whose society stands on the shoulders of our Christian forebearers, we must be careful not to view the arc of history through the lens of where we are today. Apparently, Paul didn't see his important work being to overthrow the cultural system he was living in. That was not his goal, but rather to look at how to best live out the Christian life within that context. After all, he himself was an unjustly incarcerated man. But he wasn't crying out for his own social justice. Rather, he saw his situation as a providential opportunity to minister the gospel in Caesar's own household in Rome. We should be thankful that as a result of the transforming power of the gospel in the world, society has made great progress in stamping out slavery, even though it still widely exists in pockets around the world. This is also a good reminder to us in our day and age as our society continues to turn away from God that our first duty is not to promote change from the top down politically, but rather to be proclaiming the gospel where we are planted making disciples, and seeing Jesus transform individual lives. A society and culture will reflect the reality of its citizens. If a Christian ethic has been a part of the fabric of America's history, it's not primarily due to politics or social justice efforts. The following words have been attributed to the French political philosopher Tocqueville upon his own observation of America in the 1800s. He said, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her natural resources, her commercial wealth, her institutions of learning, her democratic congress, and her matchless constitution. And it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, 
she will cease to be great. While we do not live in a society of bond servants and masters, I do believe that we can make application from these biblical principles to the employee-employer relationship that most of us will be involved in at some point in our lives. Many of us, in fact, spend the majority of our waking hours in the work environment. And it's there that God calls us to live out our mission for him. Paul, in this passage, calls us to submit in obedience to those that are in authority over us in the workplace. And not only when we're being watched, but when we're working in secret as well. Even then, we should be honorable in our work with a sincere heart, fearing the Lord. We're called to work heartily, not as though we were merely working for the boss or for the corporation, but as though we're directly working for the Lord. Granted, it's possible to be mistreated in the workplace, to not be valued, to not be paid what you deserve, and to be taken advantage of. And if our focus is upon those things, then we're going to be tempted to not give our all. Paul helps us redirect our focus. You are serving the Lord Christ, he says. And it is from him that you will receive the inheritance as your reward. A former pastor of mine was fond of saying that God is keeping the books. With God, there is no partiality. And in his providential timing, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. And since we do not have to get justice for ourselves, this frees us up to be a testimony of God's grace to those in authority over us. We can present Christ in his good news while he ultimately represents us before God and man. And if instead you find yourself in the employer or boss role relationship, your calling, according to Paul, is to be just and fair with your employees, knowing full well that even though you may be at the top of the food chain in the earthly realm, you have a master in heaven and will give an account of your actions to him. For the Christian, this world and this life are not the focus of our mission. The focus of our mission is Jesus Christ. And we serve him first. Everything else, including our earthly employment, is subject to his dominion and lordship. In verse 2 of chapter 4, Paul shifts to the importance of praying for the mission at hand. Let's look there again in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. 
We must pray for the mission at hand if we are to be successful in it. Some have suggested that verse 2 gives us a threefold way of looking at prayer for the mission. First, that we are faithfully praying about our calling and about our mission, steadfastly, consistently. Secondly, that we are to be watchful with expectation that God will answer our prayer. And thirdly, to be poised to give thanks to God for those answers. As we pray for Christ's kingdom to flourish and grow, we should have an expectation that he's going to do it. And then we must be ready with hearts filled with thanksgiving for what he's going to do in and through us. We're also challenged to pray for the success of the gospel in other places, Paul says. We aren't in competition with other churches. If it's a Christ-centered, gospel-preaching church, then we're all part of the same team. We should pray for the success of the gospel in every church and in every believer here and around the world. The pastor hymn writer Isaac Watts, in his fourth stanza of one of my very favorite hymns, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place, says, We long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. So when you drive by other churches in Irmo, what are you prone to think about? Maybe even on the way here this morning, are you tempted to compare, to envy, maybe to look down upon? What if instead, each of us uttered a quick prayer that God would open a door for the gospel and fill that church to the brim with people coming to Christ? And that those pastors would be enabled to clearly declare the mystery of Christ to their congregations. Prayer is one of the means of grace that we have in our arsenal. But I fear that few of us take advantage of it and that we often neglect it. We have a prayer ministry here at the church because we know that without the Lord, we will fail in every attempt to expand his kingdom here. So let's gather in prayer as often as we can and ask God this request to open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, and that we might make it clear, which is how we ought to speak. When you pray in your growth classes in the coming days, when you pray in your team meetings and your community groups and other small groups, make this your prayer for your church, for your pastors, for the ministry of this pulpit, and for the membership of our church. Some perhaps insist that due to a lack of gifting or a lack of confidence that they can't speak to others about their faith in Christ. And first, let me agree with you. You have no hope of being successful in this endeavor by yourself. But instead of giving up on it, have you considered praying about it? What if all you are called to do is pray 
for an open door and the ability to speak clearly. I believe that if you make that your sincere prayer and that you're consistent with it, gaining a burden for it, that one day you're going to find yourself sharing the gospel with someone in need and you will give thanks to God because there won't be any other explanation that, but that he enabled you to do it. But if you aim at nothing, as they say, you'll surely hit it, right? So pray for the success of the gospel in your own life, that God would open a door and that he would enable you to speak clearly. Start there and allow the Lord to do the rest. It's about glorifying him anyway. It's not about us. In addition to focusing upon Jesus as the mission and praying for the mission, let's also be sure that we are seizing the mission, grabbing the mission that is in front of us. In the movie, The Dead Poets Society, teacher John Keating, a, teacher, uh, a character played by Robin Williams, gives a Latin phrase to his students from the ancient poet Horace. Carpe diem, seize the day. Literally translated, pluck the day, as in picking fruit that is ripe for the plucking. Of course, Jesus gave us this concept in relation to our mission. When upon seeing the helpless crowds that were like sheep without a shepherd, he told his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into his harvest. Paul tells us here in verse 5 of chapter 4, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Time is the great equalizer, isn't it? We all get 24 hours every day. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis speculates that one of Satan's clever trappings is to tempt us to spend our time focusing upon the guilt of the past or the fears of the future. For if he can accomplish that, then he sidelines us from that which we actually have any control over at all, the present, now. The Lord has called his church to seize the day. We must make the best use of the time that we have been given. Proclaiming the kingdom of Christ, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them the word of God. And in doing this, we must take great care to walk in wisdom, letting our words be filled with grace, not harshness or, or anger or judgment, rather seasoned with salt. When we talk of the things of the Lord, is our speech full of flavor and excitement? Or is it bland and boring? My favorite cabinet in the kitchen is the spice cabinet. 
because it's full of wonderful accents for every kind of food. And I don't like bland food. There are too many options at our disposal in our day and age to put up with eating bland food. Folks, the gospel is the most stimulating and exciting thing that we could ever talk about. And our words and demeanor should reflect that. And in order to be armed with gracious, seasoned words, Paul says we must know how to answer each person. This is a little intimidating, isn't it? This is one of the things that holds us back, I think, sometimes. But a lack of knowledge should never be a deterrent to our sharing our faith with others. However, we should be students of the word so that we are always in preparation to answer the questions that will come our way. And we may not always know the answer. In fact, it's likely that we won't. But we should always be pursuing to understand more about the nature and character of God and his word. Because that will help us in our own progress in faith and it will give us that ability to give an answer to those who ask the reason of the hope that is in us. We're launching all of our growth class opportunities today. Take advantage of one of them this semester to grow in your understanding of the word. In verses 7 through 16, the closing section of the letter, we see a list of 10 individuals and two additional churches that Paul mentions as joining together on mission with him. God calls his people together in community as many members of one body serving together on mission. His list, by all accounts, seems to include those who are male, female, slave, free, prisoners, young, old, single, married, different classes, pastors, and lay people. As he mentioned earlier in the letter, those distinctions that separate us in the world don't exist in the body of Christ. For we are all one, serving alongside each other in common purpose for a common king each with individual gifts and abilities, united under the leadership and authority of the Lord Jesus for the mission at hand. The Lord has called the leadership of this church to guide us in the vision of making disciples for Jesus. The elders have developed a biblical vision for the church and a useful tool in the disciple flow. The staff and ministry teams of the church have put feet to the disciple flow by planning and providing opportunities to worship, grow, connect, and serve here, as well as to look outward across the street, across the country, and across the world as we go on mission together. But the leadership also recognizes that even though we put forward a vision and plan, 
We don't know what God has in store for us in the next year. And so we hold all of these plans loosely and humbly under his sovereignty, ready to follow wherever he does lead. And here's the cool thing about all of this. God has equipped St. Andrews with the needed people, gifting, and resources to accomplish every single one of his purposes for us. He has given us, in addition, the gift of his spirit to empower us and the gift of his word to direct us. We can't fail as we follow him. In conclusion, we read verses 17 through 18. I say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. As we launch a new ministry year, we are reminded to fulfill our calling that we have received from Christ. We are debtors to him, and we owe him everything. How amazing that of all the ways God could have chosen to build his kingdom, he chose weak and needy people like Paul and his friends and like you and me to expand his kingdom together. And folks, the opportunity that we have for ministry with the gifts and resources that the Lord has entrusted to this church it's astounding. Paul closes with a, with a curious statement, doesn't he? Remember my chains. There's a cost in serving Christ. Paul knew that cost very well. We're not called to be part of a country club. We're not called to have a life of ease. We're called to be part of an army. And the fight we're in is not a walk in the park. It's a fight for the souls of men and women and children. Be sure that the enemy knows what's at stake in this battle. And he isn't going to let up. It's been a hard year for St. Andrews. There's no doubt about that. I imagine some of you are weary and may have even considered along the way giving up, or looking for another church where things are a bit easier. And on one level, who could blame you? But let's be careful not to overlook what God has been doing in our midst during this time. He delights to grow our faith in the struggle. And he has been at work in this church preparing her for the mission at hand. And Jesus is more than enough for that mission. He doesn't actually need us, does he? And yet he delights to use us for his glory. 
I believe with all of my heart that God has great things in store for this body in the coming days as we follow him in love and obedience. Our world is in desperate need of the life-transforming good news of Jesus Christ. And we have an amazing opportunity to be a part of that calling as we build one another up and take the message of hope to this broken world that we live in. So St. Andrews, let me encourage you to take up Paul's challenge in Christ that we've read. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. In a few minutes, we're going to dismiss to the Great Hall. And as you exit, I would encourage you to pick up a copy or two of the Ministry Year magazine to have on hand this year in your homes. This will aid you in seeing all of the opportunities that will be available to you this year to worship, to connect with one another, to grow in grace, and to serve the Lord with your gifts. In the Great Hall, there will be ministry displays manned by staff and team members to answer all of your pressing questions and to help you in this process of signing up for different opportunities. We're also going to provide a snack lunch for everyone down there, and it's going to be a great time to fellowship, to talk to one another, to build and generate excitement about the year ahead and what God is doing here. So please stop by, even if it's just for 10 minutes. There's no program planned down there. We're not going to keep you. And you can hang out for as much or as little time as you like. Parents, if you've got kids in the nursery, head that way as soon as we're finished today so that our workers can join us there as well. And there's even something fun over there for the kids today as well. St. Andrews, we have a, a great calling upon us that the Lord has given as his church, as the body of Christ that is placed here on this hill in this community. And it's up to us to make the decision if we will answer the call that's been placed upon us. And if we'll, we will see the Lord working through the power of his spirit in our neighbors and our co-workers and those in our community to bring them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And then to grow us in unity as the body of Christ and in love for one another, serving together the one to whom we owe everything. Let's pray. Father, your cause is a glorious one. And you have called us, weak as we might be, to serve the Lord Jesus and to answer the call. So would you enable us to do that, both individually and as members of the body of Christ here at St. Andrews? And as we go from this place, challenge us and inspire us as we seek to do your will, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.